welcome to the Roommates Podcast. This is a podcast about rheumatology and it stars me, Jack and my friend Mike and we try to make sense of the complicated world of rheumatology and musculoskeletal practice. Welcome back to Roommates, this is session two. Thank you to everybody that tuned in to session one and enjoyed that. Um, We had about 150 listens, we'll talk a little bit about that in the show, Um, but I won't delay us any further. So this time I talk again to uh, Mike, who is specialist rheumatology physio, and we discuss um, the early inflammatory arthritis audit. And they released a paper about some lessons that had been learned on some various different topics um, about rheumatoid arthritis and what happens to people in the first year after diagnosis. So um, we chat a little bit like that about that. We obviously tangent it away onto our favourite subject of axial spondyloarthritis, and um, we relate it to that and how we can try to improve things overall. So I hope you enjoy that chat, which will be with you in a minute. A couple of things I want to let you know. I am completely rebuilding my website, so that should be live any minute once you get to listen to this recording. Set to rheumatology.physio, and it should be there um, as soon as possible in all its new, lovely, pretty glory There'll be lots of um, blogs and things for you to see on there. Do go and check that out if you don't mind. Um, Different videos and CPD materials that I make alongside, obviously, this podcast. Do make sure you subscribe to the podcast in whichever podcast player you listen to. I am still awaiting, unfortunately, for it to load onto iTunes, but you can find it on um, Spotify and CastBox um, and all the Google podcast players that you can find, as well as you can listen to it again on my website. So have have a look there and do subscribe. And if you think any of your colleagues or peers might be interested then please do give them the link as well but without further ado let's crack on with discussing the early inflammatory arthritis audit hello welcome back to roommates my name is jack march and i am here again with magic mike dare um i've decided i'm going to come up with a either pop culture reference to you every time we record or some sort of pun mike so i've got i've got a, i've got about three lined up already and two of them got vetoed by um my girlfriend so that we kept magic mike was the one that was allowed through this time you happy with that fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> brilliant so we we were just looking at the statistics for um the first roommates recording we had about 150 people tune in so that's pretty good considering i haven't really marketed it other than one sort of tweet that i did so hopefully um if i get my get around to doing a bit more social media noise then we'll um we'll get a few more listeners this time around um and you've sent me this really long document um which is the national early inflammatory arthritis um what actually is it it's, it's like uh it's, it's like some uh, it's an audit yes yeah. so, so, some information that gleaned from from the lists that um are created when whenever people someone gets added onto the audit we can talk a little bit about how that works in a bit in a minute um but we'll have a have a bit of a chat chat about that um but otherwise everything's still much the same for you in clinic at the moment i know you're doing a lot of remote consultations yeah, still still mostly i would say 95 percent um, virtual consults so telephone consults and if we need to see um, any joints or have a look at any movements or anything like that then we switch to video um, and if if someone is you know fit and well and doesn't have too many comorbidities and they do need to come in then we do have that option now of bringing them in for a face-to-face um, so 
probably that's not going to change, I would imagine, for the next four to six weeks. So. Yeah. Do you think it's something that you, your, um, your service will continue longer term as well? I think as a lot of people found it very useful. I think rheumatology is one place that certainly can be very helpful. Yeah, I think physio probably yes. And I guess your review appointments for rheumatology, yes. But it's very difficult when patients are reporting swollen joints mm. and um, bloods are normal and video consults not always the greatest quality. Um, it's really hard to make good clinical decisions without actually having the joint in front of you and or having a look at all the joints. Mm. So, I mean, I think a, a lot of consults will be replaced um, by by virtual consults, but I think there's always going to be a good space in room before face-to-face exam. Definitely, definitely. I remember a, um, I think, I can't remember if it was an audit, but I, I forget where it was from, and I'll probably get, probably someone might, might be able to find the link for it, but it was, it, was, um, it was an AXPAR audit from a number of years ago, and they showed how far people travelled for their appointments and um it was something like i think i think that i think the audit was from somewhere like bristol or birmingham and they sort of had an average traveling time of sort of 45 minutes so i i always think if you can cut that out especially with rheumatology you end up with a lot of appointments sometimes so even if you can cut out one or two of those journeys sometimes it can be very helpful can't it and i think this what we're going to talk about today the um early arthritis audit um they talk about these um yearly reviews and i suspect that not the first one for sure for the first yearly review after diagnosis, but certainly when people have been stable on disease modifiers or um, or biologics, etc., for a longer period of time, then probably some of them can be replaced for virtual consults as well. Yeah, I, I would I would say probably all of them, Jack. Um, I think once you're stable and you've got low disease activity, um, there's no reason why you can't have virtual consults. I think the challenge comes in more with the new patients when you're trying to kind of get to the bottom of their complaints and actually Uh. determine if there are a a rheumatology presentation or not. You need to examine them, really. Yeah, one thing that's impossible to do by webcam is look at people's nails. I don't know if you've tried to do that yet, (laughs) but unless you've got the world's best webcam, you can't pick up up pitting in nails via webcam. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly, and I think even... Um, simple things like just feeling the synovium of the MCP joints or PIP joints, you know, they they may not necessarily look that swollen and angry on a webcam, but I'm sure a lot of the time if you actually had a feel around, there would be some sponginess and tenderness and so forth. So, yeah. Definitely. Um, so let's talk about this um, audit and I'll put a link into um, into the comments attached to the podcast and the video. Um, but it's a really interesting document, really. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about it is within rheumatology, obviously, we get these. We get these types of audits because of the drugs that people start and they go onto these uh, or get admitted into these sort of databases which are housed to try and work out some data that um, sort of matches to a lot of the patients, really. And obviously, it's not like a it's not like a randomized controlled trial. You can't necessarily determine any causation or anything, but you can get some really nice sort of correlating data and definitely you get some really big numbers. So I think there was um, I think they've got about 8000 patients on this um, on this particular 
database, although not all of them were included in in what we're going to talk about today, because they were mostly looking at their first yearly review in this one. So it was just the people that got added within the 12 months. Yeah. Um, but you can certainly get some really nice data. And I think this for, certainly for us as physios, there's some really interesting things in here about, um, you know, how long it took to get referred um, and um, what happens when you get treated early as well. Because that's what's something that I always talk about is really you're looking when we're talking about people recognizing these types of conditions and referring to rheumatology it's so they can get medically treated early. Um, and this sort of clearly shows that um, when people are treated early, they do better. So um it, it's really interesting. Have you, have you have you actually been involved in getting patients onto these or anything like that in the past? I know I, I did years ago, but I haven't done it in a while. You mean the audits or? Mm. Uh, so, I mean, the, the services that I work in at the moment don't offer early inflammatory arthritis clinics. Those services are run directly by the trust. Um, Fair so, enough. Although we may be involved in getting the patient down the pathway um, and in front of the rheumatology consultant in the early inflammatory arthritis um, clinic, we don't physically run those clinics yet. Um, I mean, there, there's no reason why um, we couldn't run those services in a community service in the future. But for the moment, I, I think most of those services sit with the trusts. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting um, document. I, I think, I mean, you and I always have the gripe, though, don't we, that the all these services, the, these early inflammatory arthritis services are so heavily geared towards rheumatoid and rheumatoid-like presentations, and they do a massive disservice, I think, to the spondyloarthropathy um, patients, especially the axial spondyloarthropathy mm. patients, because these patients don't have angry swollen joints and high CRPs. So, you know, they, they often don't meet the criteria for these EIA clinics, which which I really think is something that, you know, as a rheumatology um, fraternity, we, we really need to work on that and improve the service for, for the non-rheumatoid patients, really. Mm. Definitely. I'm, sh I'm sure you're the same as me, that you're looking for, a, if you get a spondyli spondylitis patient, if find a swollen joint so you can try and force them through an early arthritis clinic. I bet you've done that before, like I have. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, or you you can't just hope um, they're going to pop up with the CRP of 30 or 40 so that you can squeeze mm. them down at your arthritis clinic. But most of them, you know, if unless you've seen them in a really angry stage, they're going to have a CRP of 5 or 6 or, if mm. you're lucky, 12. Um, and they're probably not going to meet the criteria for an EIA clinic. So it's yeah, difficult. It's a yeah, it's a real shame, isn't it? Because I read the, some of these findings and you think, actually, if I map that onto what my clinical experience is with spondylitis, I bet if they did the exact same thing for a spondylitis patients, you'd probably see the same sort of numbers. Like um, they pretty much everybody got a, a reduced disease burden. Um, about 50% of them were in remission at 12 months after diagnosis, which if you yeah. think about if, 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 you know, if I think about people who I've sort of recognized early doors and said, you know, I think you might have rheumatoid arthritis, they get really concerned about that because they like, especially if they've got a family history, their parents or like a mother who's got really disabling joint deformities and things. And then if, if I said to them, well, actually, what we we've picked it up quite early so there's at least a 50 percent chance that you'll go into remission in a year's time um yeah. 
that's a really reassuring number, isn't it? And I, and it, I, I've sort of that's something I've sort of reasonably well known for a number of years, but it still surprises me that that it's that high. Um, but it is, it, it, they do treat them quite quite severely with medications, and it it does work. Yeah, I think I, I think the this document was quite interesting for me in the sense that it, it really just made me. Um, kind of refresh my confidence in conventional DMARDs and <laughs> you bet your bottom dollar that most of these patients are going to be on methotrexate and something else. So, you know, methotrexate really does work for these early inflammatory arthritis patients and half of them are going to be in remission um, in, in a year's time. And I, I'd probably um, put a large sum on mo- of money and say that the, you know, the other half or a significant portion of the other half probably had low to moderate disease activity, which is probably a significant improvement from what they came in with. Um, and I think the the review said that only 15% of patients started targeted therapies or biological therapies in the first year. So people seem to do pretty well with the conventional DMARs, um, which, which, you know, was just a nice refresher for me, really. Yeah, it's really good, isn't it? Because I think certainly it, we see a lot of research about the um, about the biologics and these new sort of jack inhibitors, um, which I think is very well named. Um, but the uh, but <laughs> some patents in there, jack. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm sure there must be some money coming my way. But the um, you, I think the one of the things we know is that, like you said, with methotrexate and things, the, the benefits of it within this population is so well known they almost just don't bother researching it that much anymore so you just see all these biologics research and then when you if you um if you look at like some of the comparative trials then actually the biologics aren't really that much better than methotrexate overall but what they do is they they give you that other option when methotrexate doesn't work so like you said it's it's not many people that end up going on to that well especially for in the first year it's not that many people that end up going on to those um those drugs anyway so it, it you know like you said it is really good um and, and i think like you said that goes along with almost everybody that they mentioned in in here had an improvement in their disease activity score at 12 months so they so pretty much everybody got better to a degree so like you said even people with severe uh disease probably got down into moderate or even mild so um i think uh somewhere is it 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 said I've lost the actual numbers now, but it, somewhere it said that um, the it, so the average improvement was was quite significant. So it was double the the minimal clinical importance difference, if that makes sense as a sentence. Um, so it was yeah. twice as much as that. So the people were doing pretty well um, across the board, really. Yeah, I think it it was also interesting to see the variations um, around the country. And yeah, definitely. if I if I recall correctly. Um, I think London was actually one of the worst performers um, out of the country in the sense that only 15% of patients um, in the study got an annual review in London boroughs. Um, and there were there were other kind of big stats for me in the sense that only 39% of patients um, at their reviews in London boroughs had cardiac risk factors assessed and so forth. And Interestingly, you know, other areas of the country like the Northwest and the Northeast, and especially the Midlands, which, you know, if you think about Yorkshire um, and, and Leeds in particular being a, a workhorse for rheumatology, they really perform in quite well up there. So 
was interesting to see the, the variation in the country um, in really the EIA services and the performance um, they, they're providing for patients. Yeah, it, it, I do find it fascinating, this sort of this, I suppose, a lack of standardization, isn't it? For, considering there is this good evidence all over the place for if you do specific things, you get better outcomes, um, that there is these differences. And, I, and it, you know, I wonder whether part of me wonders whether it's a sort of a staffing difference where you might have um, some people just not like individuals, almost not um not performing within within their departments um, so much, and it can bring down a different area quite significantly because there's you know quite large areas like you said they're they're referring into sort of trusts um, not in community care, so you might have quite a wide catchment area. Um, but I think, like you just said as well, it, it, it is interesting for especially us as therapists um, that sort of cardiovascular disease risk, but also bone health risk as well. Um, yeah. Those those relatively you know, relatively low numbers that should be assessed every year. So one of the things that I always go on about on my courses is that it's worth doing those risks, risk factors with your patients if you've got them in, um, because you will find a remarkable number of people that do need to go on to bone protection or do need to go for further cardiovascular testing. Um, and you can make a huge difference. It's something relatively simple to do, but can be a really big difference to the patient as well. Yeah, I mean, it's pre it's preventative medicine, isn't it, mm. really? Because we know that the these patients with inflammatory arthritis, especially the ones who've had um, their inflammation kind of going un untreated for a long time, are at a higher risk for cardiovascular disease, hypertension, dyslipidemia, diabetes, um, and obviously, you know, osteopenia, osteoporosis. Um, so it, it's definitely worth checking. I guess the challenge is always like any NHS-based services is when you're running busy clinics and you've only got 15 or 20 minutes per patient and, you know, you've got a clinic list of 20 or 30 patients, uh, <laughs> I guess it's quite easy to just let uh, a blood pressure or, or kind of a frac score slide, isn't it? So. Yeah, it is. I, yeah, it's, it's, it is difficult. And, you know, I've worked in those clinics as well and, you know, you are under, under a lot of pressure especially with an admin burden and those things do add another admin burden to you but um it is you know it's always something i think is worth doing if you can manage it and if you're seeing the person for a follow-up then maybe it's worth worth putting in the notes to do the next appointment um something like that where you might might just have a little bit more time but um yeah definitely yeah. difficult yeah but i, I think overall it, it's a very interesting um audit paper and um i, I believe that there was a precursor um, to this audit paper where they they provided uh, actual breakdown of um, how many patients that were kind of seen in the early inflammatory arthritis clinic actually had inflammatory arthritis. Mm. And, I mean, don't quote me on the numbers, but I, mm -hmm. I think it was only about 37% actually yeah. had inflammatory arthritis, you know, which means that 60% of patients that are coming into those clinics have mechanical um or chronic pain syndromes, and I guess the the main kind of thinking point for me is, you know, is if some boroughs, some areas in the country are performing quite badly in, in getting people into these clinics in six weeks and getting them on treatment, um, is how do we keep all of those patients out of inflammatory clinics? And I think the numbers would really improve wouldn't it? And I think 
that that's really where we can make the big difference for our non-rheumatoid patients, like our AXPAR patients and our psoriatic arthritis patients, is if if we take away that significant mechanical and chronic pain syndrome um, cohort out of inflammatory arthritis clinics, we could really make a big difference for our other rheumatic disease patients. Definitely. And uh, there is... Um... It's a good time to bring this up, really, but the, um, NAS have just started a new sort of project where they're going to aim to bring the delay to diagnosis for AXPAR patients down. And one of their problems that they've sort of suggested is an issue is um, people not being aware of the signs and symptoms of something like an axial spondyloarthritis. And it works both ways, doesn't it? So if you've got a really long delay to diagnosis, it's probably because there's multiple things happening. So those patients, some patients are being missed and not referred. Some patients are being inappropriately referred who should never have gone near a rheumatology department because whoever's seen them's gone. I don't know what this is. Maybe it's an axe bar because uh, they've got mul- they've got spine pain and multiple joint pains or something. And then you've got the other people who would ha- who have been referred, but because those other people are, for want of a better term, blocking the referral, they're um, they're they're slowing the the waiting list down for those people that do need to be there. So it it it's make it awareness is the first thing, isn't it? That we need to get people be making better referrals. Uh, and like you said, you don't want to lose those 37% that are in there now, but you want to get that much higher. And there's always going to be some patients in there that are, you know, they're musculoskeletal masqueraders for a start. So you're going to get some patients in there who just don't have it, uh, but look for all the world like it. And you'll always get some that are delayed, um, but trying to on average, bring that down. I think NASA's target is for the average was eight and a half years. They're aiming to bring it down to one, which is, a huge um improvement um and i think like you said i think if you had an equivalent early arthritis um pathway for the spine patients those uh, that could go a long way where it, where they were given sort of protected slots that could go um but then obviously you, you've only got so many rheumatology appointments in the in a year what you've got to kick something out and like you said that that's the way to do it is get get some of those mechanical patients or persistent pain patients out of rheumatology so that those ones that need to be there can be yeah absolutely and i think the responsibility for that is very multifactorial jack i think Mm. the responsibility lies with with the referrer um to make sure that they making good clinical decisions when they refer patients um, I guess the responsibility also lies with the public to know more about axial spondyloarthritis and inflammatory arthritis. So to make themselves known to their to their GP when they do have swollen joints or you know insidious onset of back pain at a very young age, and also the responsibility lies with the trusts in in kind of rheumatology services to you know make fast track pathways for inflammatory back pain for example available and accessible like they do for early inflammatory arthritis um i think if you if you look back at the review documents from the um all parliamentary review that mass were involved in i think less than 40 percent of trusts had early inflammatory um back pain pathways um Mm. so it's really something that needs to come up higher on rheumatology departments' um, agendas, especially because, you know, conventional demands don't work for AXPAR patients. So, you know, the NHS is spending a truckload of money on expensive drugs for these patients. So, you know, we, we, we need to improve the service for them. It, you know, it's not like 
methotrexate or sulfasalazine that's relatively cheap and works well for peripheral arthritis, for example. Mm. Yeah, it's a fascinating sort of conundrum, really, isn't it? Like you said, it's sort of if you if you have someone who has an AXPAR develop and they don't attend the GP or the physio for three years, then obviously their delay to diagnosis is going to be significant. But then we can't rely, we can't say, you know, we can't rely on someone Googling their symptoms and getting the right answer either. So, you know, I know NAS do great work trying to get um, public campaigns out, but I think also it's got to be any, any healthcare professional that sees people has to be aware that those signs and symptoms could be, no matter how subtle could be related to an AXPAR. And, um, I think again, back going. I think that that study that showed eight and a half years. I think was back in 2016 now, so it's a bit outdated. But I think they showed that the average person had seen about six healthcare professionals as well during the time of having being delayed. So you think there's six opportunities there where they could have been referred um, and and weren't, or, or or whatever it was. And you know, some will always slip through the net, but you've got to minimise that as much as possible. So I think. You know, from a professional responsibility, we need to be aware of these patients, make sure we screen them appropriately, know what the pathways are, whether they're appropriate or not. Um, we still need to know what they are and then um, um, and then move forward. Like I, I, I had a patient, I had a colleague ring me the other week who they the only way of accessing rheumatology where they are is they have to have had an anti-CCP done. Um, right. And you're like, well, that's not going to do much good for an AXPAR patient. <laughs> so, no. so, you, so you like well, so there's this weird sort of things all over the place but you've got to know sort of on location where or what the pathway is for that specific um for that specific diet or potential diagnosis i think to try and help um because we do know there's a delay so it, while it maybe shouldn't fall on us to do that then unfortunately we have to do that to try and help these patients really yeah, and hopefully, and you know, if if we if we really sum up the the review um, from my side is you know there, there's great um, evidence in this review from BSR on early inflammatory arthritis services that mm. the vast majority of patients are in a much better position twelve months after Definitely. they enter the system, and half of the patients are in clinical remission, which is which is massive after 12 months. And I think the paper also highlights that there's really good evidence to show that the, the kind of associated condition risk is much lower when people are on treatment, cardiovascular risk, fracture risk, hospital admission risk. Um, and I really hope that uh, we can read papers in the future on um, AXPA and see the same kind of numbers where Definitely. we see, you know, significant number of AXPAR patients are seen quickly and half of them are in remission in a year. And, yeah, I look forward I look forward to reading those papers in the future. Mm, for, definitely. For Sounds like you're a PhD and you could be Dr. Dare and you can sort that yeah. out. Uh, I, I, not for a while, I don't think. <laughs> um, not for a while. Maybe one day. One day when I'm big, Jack. <laughs> no worries well i hope hopefully everybody does uh download this report and um and and like we have gained some really good bit of good information but also be reassured that the patients that we're referring are going to do pretty well um and we can reassure them at the outset that they're likely to do pretty well um without going on to really what aren't very nice biologic drugs really and then um hopefully we as you said we can we can use some of this to move forwards and improve referrals yeah 
Exactly. And uh, I think although there, there's a lot of numbers in here that need improving, I think overall it's it's very encouraging to, to read that there's a 50% chance that patient with, you know, several swollen joints sitting in front of you is going to be in remission in a year's time, which is really encouraging, I think. Yeah, brilliant. Cool. Well, great to talk to you again, Mike. And um we'll uh, we'll do this again soon i'm sure we've uh, we've got a couple of topics that have turned up on twitter recently that i think we can get in for a conversation um so we'll do that next time and i'll come up with a new pun around your name as well thanks jack Always no worries have a good rest of the evening Cheers, jack. Bye.